Chinatown plan down to the letter. This week, the plan to pedestrianize 102 Ave came to Urban Planning Committee, much, it seemed, to the chagrin of city administration. Plus, we speak with the city manager about the Justice Minister's letter and the Chinatown plan. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 181, the only audio show that has Edmonton city manager on it almost as much as he's at council meetings. We'll be talking with Andre Corbald later in the episode. First, the rapid fire segment. Once a leader, the city of Edmonton now throws it all away was a headline this week. At press time, we were not able to figure out whether the headline was referring to our sports team performance, waste management, university rankings, LRT safety, or our throwing of 20,000 cubic meters of winter sand in the landfill every year. The city of Edmonton, without asking us for our download stats on zoning episodes first, has decided to launch a new podcast series focused on zoning. The five-episode podcast with the pun-based, real original, title, Making Space, is expected to smash records. But I mean that literally. It's a strategy to keep listeners awake when they start dozing off listening about zoning. Edmonton is set to provide details on the launch of e-scooters and e-bikes within the city on Friday morning, so you will have heard the announcement by the time you listen to this. Said Jessica Lamar, Director of Safe Mobility and Traffic Operations, quote, We did our absolute best to prevent companies from doing business within the city with rapidly changing regulation, bureaucratic nightmares, and restrictive licensing, but shockingly, a couple of companies managed to make it through. We'll do better next year. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this week, the ECF wants to talk to you. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Lonkink. I'm Andrew Paul. And we're the hosts of the Well Endowed Podcast. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation, or ECF as we call it. ECF provides grants to charities through the endowment funds we create and manage with our donors. Hence the title of our show, The Well Endowed Podcast. Every month, we bring you a collection of stories and interviews with fascinating guests who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. Through these stories, we look at the space where endowments intersect with your communities. So if you're interested in the people and issues impacting your community, check out thewellendowedpodcast.com. So Mac, I want to start the show with a bit of a correction, clarification. I'm not sure what to call this, but we reported a couple of weeks ago that 21% of all of the city's roadway infrastructure was added to the city inventory in the last five years. And while that is technically correct, the stat is not so jarring as it initially seems. No, you uh, you tweaked on that stat when it came out, and it was quite shocking, right, to think that a fifth of our roadway network had been added within one budget cycle is a pretty alarming number. This number uh, came up in the context of snow removal and the snow and ice control report, and uh, because you and I were so fascinated by this number, Taproot decided to look into it, and we found that Actually, it hasn't increased by 21% in one budget cycle. What has happened is that Edmonton has started to count their laneways differently for the purposes of snow and ice control. So there has been some annexation, and we have obviously continued to grow as a city. But the biggest contribution to that increase is that we are now counting alleyways. They never used to be in those numbers. I think it's just probably poor communication. Well, speaking of Poor communication. The 102F pedestrianization report came to Urban Planning Committee this week, which was poorly communicated in the agenda. In the agenda, it was titled 102 Avenue LRT Pedestrian Crosswalk Recommendation. This is the discussion around closing a vehicle lane. 
to vehicle traffic on 102 Ave between 99th Street and 103rd Street. I don't know that that's a crosswalk, but alas, we got the report. And also just a quick correction, Troy. It's not closing a lane. It's keeping a lane closed that has been closed for this last three years or four years during construction. It's more accurate to say not reopening a traffic lane. And even then, we have completely destroyed the old traffic lane and constructed a new road in the place. Thank you for that clarification, Mac. It's noted, and it gets us to the communication exercise that council had this week with administration, in which this topic... I don't know who in administration was hurt by a pedestrian-only street, but administration was doing everything it could to prevent that from happening ever again. The the other thing I'll just quickly mention about the recommendation in this report that went to committee was that they were really only talking about one block, right? They were going to pilot 99 to 100th, which just makes absolutely no sense to me at all, given that this uh, corridor along the LRT goes all the way along 102nd Avenue. But I was not expecting administration to be incredibly supportive of this idea, even though we've heard some councillors, including Councillor Stevenson, a councillor for the area who's been you know, excited about it. But tell us, Troy, what did administration bring to the table this week? Some of the choice quotes that came out is that uh, closing, air quotes around there, this road will cause 300 to 600 cars to appear on Jasper Ave or 104 Ave during rush hours. Like you had mentioned, this road has been closed for the past four years. I think if the cars were there, they're already there. Indeed. There were some even more baffling quotes. Like, for example, closing the vehicle lane could reduce safety because vehicle drivers are eyes on the street. As if people in a car are more attentive to street life than people walking or cycling (laughs) by. Eyes on the street, really. Okay. One of the more absurd suggestions was if they close the vehicle lane, then there's a higher risk of pedestrians getting hit by trains because the cars won't be there to buffer the trains away from the pedestrians. And aren't the trains on tracks? They are. Uh, granted, this is a low floor style LRT. So, you know, there's not the crossing arms with the blinking lights. So theoretically, if someone has a blindfold on and runs on the track, <laughs> they may get hit by a train. Okay. But that did lead into administration's talk around crossings and how if they closed the vehicle lane, then suddenly people would feel safe to cross sort of anywhere, which might risk them crossing the tracks in a place that was undesired. And they're so close to getting the point there. They're so close to realizing that if the vehicle lane isn't there, that people feel safer to cross the street. And then they just miss it and say, that's a problem that people feel safe crossing the street. (laughs) Okay, so administration did their best to kibosh this idea, but that's not what happened, right? No, uh, of course, this recommendation will go to council next week. But the recommendation that was moved by Councillor Salvador, which was then passed 3-2, was to pilot for one year the closure closure of this vehicle lane from 99th Street to 103 Street for a full year. And there was some debate around exactly how they could do this because the Traffic Safety Act requires that city council pass a bylaw in order to close a roadway. Council naturally asked, you know, do we have to open this roadway while we draft the bylaw to close 
this roadway? And administration said, no, nah, no, nah, we can we can do an immediate closure while we do the bylaw process. So if council is to support this next week, then this new roadway will never open to vehicles for at least a year during the pilot. Well, that's the way it should be. So thank you, committee, for that recommendation. I'm curious, did they talk at all about reasons why the two people who voted in against this in particular reasons why they didn't want to see this pilot go ahead one of the people voting against was karen principe and she actually had a line of questioning that was all around pilot projects Uh, she really bumped on the concept of everything has to be a pilot oh interesting yeah she said basically what evidence do we have that pilots actually get us the data that they want like do we just do pilots and then we make a decision with the same amount of information after a year, which was a fairly decent point. But her conclusion from that is we already know that Edmontonians don't want this war on cars stuff. So let's not do the pilot anyway. That was Principe. (laughs) Uh, Sarah Hamilton, she was more around a business focus. She outlined some businesses, explicitly the YMCA. That was one that council loved to go back to. Basically, the YMCA had highlighted the pandemic has caused us a lot of stress. We've lost a lot of clientele. We don't want to further upset the ability of people to get to our business. Missing, of course, that, you know, businesses constantly overestimate the number of people that arrive by vehicle. And also that this would be a single vehicle lane with no parking or stopping lanes. So no one can actually attend the YMCA via this vehicle lane, except by turning off 102F. And that's an important consideration because I want to remind everyone that when traffic modeling was done for 102F, during peak hours, the vehicle lane, how long do you think administration modeled it would take to perform a right turn across the LRT tracks onto a different roadway? From 102F. Well, I know the answer, but if I hadn't known the answer, I would have guessed, you know, two or three minutes. We've heard with other roads like the Twiller Drive Expressway and other things like we're saving drivers a few minutes, right? When we make these changes. It's 18 minutes. 18 minutes to perform a turn off of this roadway is administration's prediction of the value of this roadway. This is under no circumstances an acceptable place for traffic to move. Not the least of which because we should embrace this as a pedestrian space, but because this is a crap route for cars. Every driver will hate it. Let's just not open it and save us all the trouble. Here, here. Uh, Fun bonus little question here for you, Troy. Any guesses as to why they kept going back to the YMCA for the business example? Mac, I feel like there's an enlightening answer to this. Why is that? The only business on that stretch of road that is still open. (laughs) you don't count city center mall which doesn't actually have any street facing retail everything else is closed all of the businesses hold renfrew and the other stores in manulife have closed the second cup is long gone literally the only thing there is the public library on one end and the ymca on the other end don't forget about the two private parkades that can be accessed from either roads (sighs) okay you got me parkades are kind of businesses well we look forward to seeing that pass at council next week knock on wood. Uh, The one last update we want to give is we got a update on the overdose prevention and response. This is, of course, critically important. We've talked about the drug poisoning crisis, including in a very extensive episode with Elaine Hishka. But 
What happened this week, Mac? Well, the city announced something that we've heard about recently and we knew was coming. We just didn't have any details. So it's official now. The Boyle Street Community Services will operate a new overdose prevention and response program. It's a partnership with the Downtown Business Association and the city. The city's funding this with $195,000 from that downtown vibrancy strategy money. Uh, These teams will be active from May to September. So the idea is these medical professionals and outreach workers will respond to drug poisonings in the downtown Pedway system and the area all around that. So this is, as you said, very critical given that there were more than 1,700 Albertans that died of drug overdoses last year. And in January in Edmonton, 55 people just in that one single month. So it hasn't gone away, this problem. This team should have a a real impact on being able to respond to these things, at least in this downtown area, for the next few months, at least. Of course, this is tightly related to the issue of downtown disorder, downtown crime, and of course, Chinatown, which has been in the news the last couple of weeks. Of course, the tragic incident with the two men being killed in Chinatown. And we wanted to get some additional context on what's being done in Chinatown, as well as the response to Minister Shandro's letter and request of the mayor for a community safety plan. And we figured in this case, it's best to go to as best a source as we have. The city manager, Andre Corbald, we reached out to him and he graciously agreed to join us onto the show. Welcome to the show, Andre. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Glad to have you with us. Well, uh, I want to first ask you, last week at Council, uh, on Friday, the topic of discussion turned to this letter, right, from Justice Minister Tyler Shandro. And you seem to have a real sense of urgency around responding to the letter. Can you help us understand why or or, or what you were um, thinking and uh, and how you're approaching the response to the letter. Yeah, certainly. In terms of a sense of urgency, the real sense of urgency, I think, comes from the tragic events recently and the difficult situation that uh, we're all experiencing in, in Edmonton and particularly in Chinatown. That's the, the the main primary reason for urgency. The secondary piece is you know, that we have a, a legal legislative request from the minister that I think it's important to answer. And we, we have a lot to offer in that response to the minister. And we have a deadline of 9 June and we're going to make that deadline and because we want to be certainly compliant with uh, the Police Act and the minister's direction. So I want to talk a little bit about that letter, because for many of us in the public, it seemed as if this letter came a bit out of left field. To what extent is that true departmentally? Like, were there deputy ministers and staff interacting with city staff, asking questions? Was there any sense within the city that this was coming? Or was it dropped on your desk the same day it was dropped everywhere else? Yeah, there were certainly no back channels on this one. It was dropped uh, on my desk the same as everyone else. And and when it went out public, there were no uh, administrative discussions about using the act in this way or putting this letter out. I can tell you that we've had some administrative discussions since. uh, And I had a a very good conversation with the Deputy Minister of Justice and Sol Jen today because I want to share what our outline for the response is. And we will have some ongoing discussions between now and the 9th because I want to make sure it's my job to make sure that our reply uh, meets the needs of the minister. And we can do that very collaboratively with the department, and we'll, we'll continue to do that over the coming days. It did seem like the conversation at council was that this is an opportunity. Is that essentially how you and your team are, 
are approaching this? Yeah, I think there's definitely opportunities here to provide clarity and, and not sort of got you opportunities, but there is an opportunity to provide clarity to the province and to the minister about all the things that we have been working on, all the things we, we've been doing. It's also an opportunity to reiterate the, the complex nature of these uh, disorder issues that I think everybody agrees uh, stem from mental health and addictions issues. And I know we, you know, we agreed with the province on some of that. Which, which means there's also an opportunity to not just address policing and enforcement aspects of the public safety plan, but the parts of the public safety plan that need to address the core root issues of some of uh, the disorder we're seeing in our city. And that is an opportunity to once again reiterate things. And I'll use one specific example is, you know, our request that the province adopt minimum shelter standards that were adopted by the city. And that's a really important one because the moment you adopt those kind of standards, you're going to reduce immediately potential disorder problems in the downtown core because, you know, people won't be displaced out of shelters at seven or eight o'clock in the morning if you adopt that kind of a standard. When council was talking about this public safety plan, a lot of the discussion did seem to focus around this as a communication exercise. We're, it's not as if we received this letter and now, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. The public should be safe. It was, we're already doing many of these things. We're taking this letter as an opportunity to communicate some of the things that we're already doing and maybe tweak a couple of things. Is that a fair characterization? Well, I, I think it's important to understand the legislative aspects of the Police Act and the Section 30 that was used in this case. We take that very seriously. So that first and foremost in terms of a reply. But I think the communication piece comes, you know, part and parcel with the opportunity here. The reality is even even in our discussion with uh, Minister Shandro yesterday, you know, we, we made clear some of the things we're doing and uh, I don't think there was certain clarity on some of the aspects of the actions we've uh, already taken. So again, we, we can demonstrate that very clearly in this public safety plan. Now, the fortunate thing from a timing perspective is notwithstanding the tragic uh, situation this past two weeks is, as you know, we also put in front of council and council approved a community safety and well-being strategy. That is going to be a core aspect of our reply to the minister. It's about eight days old in terms of being approved by council last week, not even. So, you know, we have that to respond to. But that strategy has been in the works for almost a year, as you know, starting back with the task force recommendations last year. Uh, you mentioned uh, the tragedy in Chinatown. The the two men that were killed there has been an inciting incident for a lot of the conversation. The minister's letter mentioned that, and that's really the only reference I could see in there to Chinatown. But it does seem like the city's response is largely about Chinatown, right? There's the $300,000 that council approved. There's the the new recovery fund for Chinatown. There's talk of, you know, cleanups for both needles and trash, maybe even private security in Chinatown. Why is the response so focused on Chinatown? Well, I think the response is more most focused on Chinatown in the immediacy because one of the tragic incidents, two, because there's such a concentration of disorder on the LRT and in Chinatown in particular. Uh, you know, I think we have made progress, uh, a, lot, a lot of progress recently in the LRT system. And this is the next point of, I would say, highest priority. But the response uh, and the safety plan will make it clear that it's not just about Chinatown and, and there are other communities 
such as Alberta Avenue, White Avenue, 118th. These are all areas that I, I think also need to be addressed. We're going to make that clear in this public safety plan. I would say Chinatown is a high priority given the entire context of this right now uh, and given the concentration of social disorder in that area. You've talked sort of in broad strokes of what the plan might encompass, what you might look to focus on. Let's talk a little bit about specifics. Transit disorder, as an example, if transit peace officers are one ways to solve this, how many transit peace officers do we currently have? And does this plan propose an increase? If so, how many? Just on that specific one, the plan to increase transit officers was in fact approved by council back in February. And at that point, we had approximately 70 transit police officers in the system. Some of that was because of vacancies. Some of that was because there was a, there was a limit. We are, we are now authorized to go up to uh, 95 transit police officers. And one of the big steps that was taken this past week is to commence a transit peace officer training course. Because as you know, we have to recruit folks. We then have to train them professionally so that they can operate in the system in the right ways and in empathetic ways uh, and do their jobs and, and protect uh, Edmontonians and, and make sure they stay safe on the job. So you don't just pull somebody off the street and make them a transit police officer. It, it takes some time. So while the plan for increasing transit police officers was approved in uh, February, we I think we're at about 82 now. So we're able to get some vacancies filled with trained officers. We're still on a track, though, to get up to 92 or 95 uh, by, the, by July. So there'll be an increase fielded. I'll assess the system at that point. And as part of that transit system plan, also approved by council, would be uh, an assessment of future needs and more additional needs, because as you know, we're going to be opening up another transit line this year. And so that will probably increase the need for transit police officers. And just so people are clear, the 92 or 95 or whatever it is, that includes transit peace officers who are part of the COT and TCAT teams, right? So we've had lots of acronyms lately about these other teams. So like community outreach uh, transit teams, that, that that's all part of that 95, right? That's not on top of that? No, that's correct. That's part of the, the complement of uh, the full complement of transit police officers. And some of them do that job sometimes and, and uh, others just do the regular patrols. In that report, there was a jurisdictional scan, the transit safety report, there was a jurisdictional scan that suggested Edmonton has quite a bit fewer transit peace officers than other cities. A 95 is a better than where we were in February, as you say. Do you think we're now closer to where we should be, or do you think there's still a, a need for more? Yeah, I will say that the jurisdictional scan, well, I always like to do those because you, you get a bit of a benchmark of where you are. It was a very, very difficult to compare in this case, given that so many different municipalities treat transit security in different ways, right? So mm -hmm. some transit police are embedded in the actual police force. And in our case, they're not, right? So it, right. It, it's a difficult comparison. I, I will start off by saying, having said that, we believe this is the right approach at this time. And of course, that approach is augmented by the security guards that are there, the type of deployment in terms of these caught teams, which are really designed to connect uh, vulnerable people to the social needs that they need and the social supports they need. And of course, we're, we're also augmenting that with actual EPS officers working jointly with our, our, our folks. And, and under this 
what I think is a, a really good way of doing it is with this joint command structure, if you will, where, you know, the chief of police, myself and uh, Cheryl Whiskey Jack from Bent Arrow Society work together on the deployment of the, these teams. Let's talk about one of the other material actions that's happened in the past couple of weeks, and that was council specifically approved $300,000 for Chinatown. And that's sort of the end of the details we have on it. We don't know quite what that money will be spent on. It struck us when we heard that approved that is $300,000 not within your discretionary spending as city manager? If there was an immediate need in Chinatown, couldn't you as city manager just spend $300,000 to solve it? Yes, I, I absolutely have the authority to do that. And we've taken, we've used that authority to do many things over, over the last year. I think in that case, that, that motion was put on the table by uh, Councillor Rice. It, it was, I think, in response to some communications with Chinatown. And, you know, the decision on how that money is used will be the Chinatown BIA. We're in collaboration with them right now. Uh, they will have those funds next week. And my understanding is that they want to use those funds to pay for private security uh, so that shop and business owners don't have to pay for their own private security or at least can, can alleviate that some. And, and that $300,000 should take care of a, a lot of those uh, private security needs, you know, right, right beside the shops, if you will, for, for, for up to five to six months. We'll, we'll continue to evaluate that. And if they need more uh, once that time is, is up, we, we will certainly consider that. But in addition to the 300000 we also approved uh, under the city manager's authority, but fully supported by council and briefed to council, the commitment of a million dollar fund for Chinatown specifically as a recovery fund. And that money will be used for anything the committee decides they need to do it, they need to use it on from a recovery perspective. Uh, I want to ask you about the the fund, but just going back to the uh, the private security that you mentioned, I mean, it's not unusual, I suppose, right, for private businesses to have private security. I mean, even if you go into shopping malls, sometimes you see security guards in, in stores. But it's happening at the same time as we're hearing about this need for what is being called saturation policing in Chinatown. So as you are part of this, you know, joint command and you're thinking you're, you're in active talks with the chief of police and others about how to address what's happening in Chinatown, why is there a need for private security? Like we spend a lot of money on police every year. What's the, how are you approaching, you know, having both of those things happening in Chinatown? From my perspective, it's about the the combined joint team, right? Having all the right players supporting these efforts at different times. Uh, and I think the reality is for, for the next little while, we're going to need like a 24 and seven presence in Chinatown. Uh, in many ways as a prevention and uh, having eyes and ears out there. And I would say that the role of private security in the Chinatown is much like the role of, of uh, security guards in the LRT. And I think I made this clear to council last week. Those security guards do an amazing job. They resolve uh, like hundreds of issues a day that don't require the police or transit police officers to attend to because mm -hmm. they're able to do that in a positive way. There are also eyes and ears for us. And if those transit uh, security guards were not present, the response time for police and trans transit police would probably be slower because they've got a direct line into the control dispatch center. And so we're seeing, you know, four minute response times, three minute response times to significant incidents. That's a lot of, a lot of the reason that's true is because of those security guards. I see that private security folks working in collaboration with other law enforcement can do the same thing for Chinatown. And that's why we think it's a, an important piece 
of, of the overall team. And then uh, just back to that fund that you mentioned, this Chinatown post-COVID vibrancy fund. So it's a million dollars. You said administered by a Chinatown committee. Is this a new organization or an existing one? Yeah, so we, we have not identified this committee yet. We I am working actively this week to get names from different organizations. We, we want, uh, obviously, the Chinatown Business Association to have a rep on the committee. We want uh, Chinatown cultural associations and uh, area business associations to be represented uh, on the committee. We, we can't have 100 people on the committee, but we really want to get a good cross group of representation from Chinatown that, that is respected in the community. We also want to get some youth involvement because we've seen a lot of uh, Chinatown youth show up at these meetings with the mayor, and that's been inspiring, and they, they, mm. they want to uh, influence this. So I'm really hoping we get some youth on this committee. I hope to facilitate the community, the committee myself. We would have a, a city rep on it to help with, you know, being the secretariat, if you will, and doing things like paperwork and making it easier to do. Uh, and then we run it just like we did with the, the Downtown Recovery Coalition did. But with that $5 million funding for Downtown Recovery Coalition, there were some aspects of China that was left out because of some boundaries were established. This $1 million will focus on Chinatown and Chinatown specific will run it in a very similar way. And what kinds of things are you expecting that this million dollar fund will go toward? What kinds of things would you like to see? Well, I, I think uh, one specific example uh, also in our Chinatown action plan is, you know, looking at some of the engineering in Chinatown where we have, you know, large uh, sidewalk areas that, you know, are very easy to set, set tents up on. And can we configure that in a different way uh, that 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 helps us prevent uh, encampments from being put together. Can we uh, do some engineering designs that help with things like lineups for people who are going to the shelter to get food on a routine basis? So that is, it's a bit more manageable and it's a bit more organized and it's a bit more clear on what, where where people can go do these things. And it's also, uh, you know, with engineering, you can often make sure the businesses themselves are always accessible. Uh, and not are, are not having things sort of show up in front of their business doors, for example, you know, blocking doors and things like that. So I think there's some engineering aspects of this. I think there'll be some vibrancy aspects. I think one of the things we heard from the Chinatown community is is a dire desire to have a promotional campaign mm. uh, for people to come to Chinatown to buy stuff and to go to restaurants. And so we've committed to that. And, and that's another reason for this funding. But mostly I want to hear from the community and what they specifically need. This was a very clear request at the, the mayor's second meeting that I attended with them, that they want some dedicated community recovery funding, much like downtown got, we're giving them that. So I wonder what the approval process would be for something like this fund. Because of course, you know, a marketing campaign is one thing. You have a bucket of money, there's a committee, and they start a promotional campaign. That seems simple. But something like engineering design changes, I would imagine such recommendations would have to go up to city council for approval. What would the structure of that look like? Would this be an advisory committee like ETSAB or one of the other council advisory committees that suggests changes? How do you envision that structure actually working for those material concrete changes. Yeah, I think I think it kind of depends on the idea. If it's an idea that is solely on Chinatown private property, uh, they don't 
need our permission provided it, you know, fits bylaws and all those kinds of things. If it's something that's required on city property, then I would say we will will facilitate that request. We would be there at the table as it's being discussed and we try to find ways to, to make that work. I strongly feel that council has empowered us to support Chinatown in, in these things. And I heard clearly from council that they don't want a lot of uh, bureaucracy attached to the, the immediate need for action. So I, I think where possible, we will, you know, avoid the need to have to go to council through some good designs and some collaboration. But I also feel that if there's a specific need to go to council for approval about a particular aspect of it, you know, we'll get quick support from them in doing this. One of these things that it reminded me of is the idea of hostile design or hostile architecture. And I think back to near the start of the pandemic, downtown, there was the CIBC branch that two significant international news installed anti-homeless spikes on the bench. This was what they called them to prevent people basically from sleeping on the concrete bench outside. Now, after much backlash, they removed it and then ended up removing that concrete block entirely. But those sorts of design treatments that make it hostile to a population, ostensibly to solve something like you're talking about encampments or uh, people sleeping rough near a business, I don't know that our council and the policy direction we've set endeavors to have more of those things installed. Do you envision that something like this might become a problem? And do you have any plans to remedy that if the BIA comes back and says, we really want these hostile design architecture solutions? Yeah, I I personally don't think hostile designs is the right approach. I think there are some smart, uh, empathetic, uh, very thoughtful designs that can uh, achieve uh, similar outcomes. Uh, My first approach would not to be go be do it uh, using that term or doing it in that way. Um, But I think you can, you know, I've also seen some very thoughtful and innovative uh, designs for these kinds of things that are not hostile in nature and just help, you know, direct where people go. And and I think the other thing is uh, if we're going to install some of these types of uh, engineering controls or supports, we also need to understand the full consequences of that. And if that means that somebody can't use a particular area on 107th Street in Chinatown, we need we need to think through where the, those people would, would therefore go instead. And I think that's the important sort of thinking part about this is making sure we we don't just make one decision about a particular spot, but we we consider the ramifications and the second and third order impacts of that decision and make sure we're able to mitigate that in different ways. So we're going to help with that. We're going to we're going to put our engineering teams to to help design some of these things and uh, we'll work with them to do that. It's interesting that you talked about ramifications and knock on effects. Uh, I think we've seen something like that Maybe I'm speculating here, but similarly with the new transit bylaw that's been proposed to city council. Now, I recall earlier city council had revoked the transit loitering bylaw. We removed the section of the bylaw that required people to not loiter and hang out in transit stations if they're not explicitly using it for EDS services. And this was in response to people who were homeless being evicted from transit stations. What the bylaw that's been proposed for city council to pass again, looks a lot like the reintroduction of the loitering bylaw. I wonder if you could take me into that. Are we supposed to see this as the reintroduction of a loitering bylaw? Is there some difference that I'm missing? And what was the thought put into bringing this back? Yeah, so I think, uh, first of all, I think it's important to understand that um, because there's a lot of confusion about bylaws coming in and out of effect for this. And so I want to make it clear that all of these changes have not been removal or additions of bylaws. They've been amendments 
to uh, essentially the overall bylaw in the city. Uh, so I want to make that clear, first of all. Secondly, I would say that um, the removal of the loitering bylaw last summer was not just about transit. It was about, you know, the entire city. Uh, whereas the the consideration of this new proposed bylaw is specifically related to transit facilities and to the working of transit. The idea behind it, you know, we had a lot of discussion. We heard a lot from people about wanting to reintroduce the loitering bylaw. We we then looked at that, looked at all those requests, and we've we've been developing along with EPS and other partners uh, something very much focused on transit safety, which is what this is. We, this is something that we told council back in January they could consider. They chose in January not to put it on the agenda uh, back then when we were talking about transit safety. Uh, so we, we brought it up again as a potential. And this time they chose to, yes, we would like to see it formally on the agenda. And so we'll have that, they'll have that discussion and debate, I think, at uh, an upcoming council meeting. The essence of that bylaw is to make it clear that what we want in terms of the transit system is people who are using transit. We really think it's important that we have an obligation to protect transit users. And so the idea is if you're in the transit system, you're there because you're using transit, whether it's a bus or a bus station or an LRT uh, or, or a tunnel uh, that gets you to uh, you know a transit station. And if you're not in there to do that, then we would rather you not be there. And we certainly don't want you uh, openly using drugs and those kinds of things because those, uh, you know, those are illegal. So the idea of this bylaw amendment is that it provides uh, another resource for officers to use. The other critical difference between the previous loitering bylaw and this amendment is that the previous bylaw involved options for ticketing people. So, you know, you're in a situation where you're handing out a ticket to somebody who can't possibly pay the ticket, which serves no great purpose. It's very clear in this bylaw amendment that the bylaw is only going to be used to move people out of the LRT or out of the transit system, ideally to a point where they can get social support. So try to make a connection. So you, you would only use the bylaw if you're making a connection to a social support and if you're offering people that you're asking to move out of the system, that they can get a connection to a shelter, they can get connections to addiction support or a safe consumption site. So you're offering as part of it. Uh, and then there's no ticketing. It's, it's not designed to ticket, it's just designed to keep the transit system safe. On the the drug aspect to this amendment, I noticed uh, I noticed that part of it as well, and it struck me as a little bit strange to put something in there, given that council has decided to pursue an exemption for decriminalization in Edmonton, as we've seen in some other places. And the other thing we've heard about drug use often lately in the context of uh, transit and in particular LRT stations is that uh, because we don't have safe consumption sites anymore, some people are choosing to shoot up in the stations because they know that there are eyes around that might see them and, uh, and, and help them in the case of an overdose. So how are you thinking about approaching the, the drug aspect of this amendment to the bylaw, given those things? Yeah, well, first I would say my understanding of what council has asked us to do on the, the drug pieces is to do some research on how an exemption would happen, not to proceed with an exemption. So that's what I'm doing. Uh, I'm following that that uh, that work, and I've been told to go sit with and, and work with experts in the health and uh, other fields to understand how that could be done and what would it take to get that done, not actually do it, just so we're clear. I, I would say that right now, uh, it's very clear to me that 
council and the people of Edmonton do not want people openly using drugs in our transit system or uh, in and and so we're proposing something that is a tool to help reduce and to help uh, enforce that. Certainly council does support the spectrum of um, harm reduction and that harm reduction is certainly a need in the space. It's, it's not a place, it shouldn't happen in the LRT system. The reality is uh, an LRT station, a train or a bus is not a safe place for one to take drugs, whether it's part of a harm reduction system or not. Those places should be properly established and should be part of the health system. And that's what we promote, right? So. Well, Andre, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us about uh, all of this. It's been a very busy past month, I'm sure, for you and the team, uh, busier than it already is, given uh, all, everything that's uh, within your purview. I wonder if uh, before you go, you could just uh, tell us a bit about the feeling. How are you and the team feeling about everything that's happening? Because there's lots of animosity or politi- politiza- politicization. That's the word, politicization online uh, about everything that's going on. I'm sure that takes a toll. Yeah, well, thanks for the question. For, first of all, you know, I, I think um, all of us uh, in city staff, you know, share, you know, the shock and horror and want to extend our sincere condolences to the Trang family and the Hong family uh, on this recent tragedy. I would also say that, you know, you know, I see staff feel that every day in, in you know, things they encounter and, and the people they try to help. And, you know, we, there's a, there's a deep sense of service um, embedded in the entire city staff. And, and so people are tired, I think, and, and working really hard, but I also sense like just such an amazing level of professionalism. And I, you know, I have to say, and I hope you don't edit this out that, um, you know, I'm, I'm so proud of every member of the team in the, in these systems, uh, you know, our folks who are working in housing, our folks who are working in uh, to help with social supports in the system. These are dedicated people that that understand this business and are doing the best they can in very difficult circumstances. You know, our transit police officers are super professional. Uh, we have their backs both in council and, uh, and administration. Uh, they are doing exactly what we've asked them to do. This applies to our bylaw officers as well. They are doing exactly what we've asked them to do in such a professional and empathetic way. And, you know, I worry about some of the social media that criticizes these professionals because, you know, they, they, they see that and they take it very earnestly and personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just see the dedication and, and the way they go out of their way to be empathetic and supportive and helpful and the way they work together. Well, we had a, some media come along on a caught ride along. And, you know, I hope people watch that media because that's the real, that's the real thing in terms of what happens. That was not staged. That's a real, that's what these teams are doing. They, they just do an amazing job. And, and my last message to Edmontonians would be just remember that when you're taking the LRT. I mean, I see the cleaners and the security officers doing their work. I always stop and thank them. And I don't tell them who I am and they don't care. But I would say every Edmontonian riding the transit system, please say, say thank you. Those cleaners are doing a hard job. They're working really hard. They, they're, they're proud of their work. And I would appeal to all Edmontonians, thank them for what they're doing because it's hard. And they, they take these jobs with great pride and we really appreciate what they're doing. The last thing I'll say is I feel as city manager and I, I think our staff feel the same way. They, we feel supported. I go to council and I ask for resources to solve these problems. I get them. Uh, and when community asks for them, for them, they get them. So 
council's never told me no when I've asked for these important resources, and I really appreciate that. So, you know, and they've said they made it clear if I need to use my my authority to spend more money, I should do that. So I feel supported from that perspective. Well, I promise that will make the cut for our listeners. Thanks again, Andre, for joining us on the show. Uh, it's been a pleasure both times to have you on the show. And I think it's really valuable to hear some of this information come directly from maybe not the source, because this is such a complex, multifaceted issue, but definitely a source and uh, a source in a position we hope will be making some very, very, very solid progress on this in the immediate future. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Really appreciate the opportunity. Welcome back anytime. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by ATB. Looking for a way to give back? ATB Cares makes it easy for all Albertans to support the causes they care about. You can donate to your favorite charity through ATB Cares, and ATB will match 20% of every dollar donated to eligible Albertan charities. You can learn more and, of course, donate at atbcares.com. And that's all for this week. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.